When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. It's heard by well over 100 people. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Derek Wetmore is down in Fort Myers, Florida, Hammond Stadium, where the Twins are training during the spring for baseball. And they play the Gophers tonight. This will be the first actual game action. Then they start their their uh, their slate of spring training games shortly after here. So let, let there's a million places we could go here, Derek, including looping you in on the argument we had for three segments. But Phil wow. Hughes, we talked about Phil Hughes yesterday a little bit. I yeah. love his honest and refreshing quote that I saw. I can't remember where I saw it, but this morning or last night, and maybe you were there for this. So Phil Hughes is uh, is set to make $13.2 million this year and then $13.2 million next year because the Twins got a little too excited after one good season and gave him an unnecessary contract extension. But he said, quote, I don't, I don't want to be known as the guy who had the bad contract, end quote. Hmm. He wants to give it his all and see what happens. Yeah. The problem is he's already made a lot of money the last few years. It's already a bad contract. So I guess if he were like, a good solid number three starter who could pitch almost 400 innings the next two years, you'd forget about it. Uh, but interesting to hear the refreshing honesty there from Phil Hughes. Yeah, that's typical Hughes from my experience. Talking with him, he is one of the most... Um, I think I think there's always this divide between what you think an athlete is going to be like because you see him on TV and then maybe what he's like as a guy like Judd. I, I think of Adrian Peterson or guys that you never really, I mean, you're still arm's length away from all of these guys, even as a reporter who covers the team every day. Phil Hughes is one of the people who you're like, oh, that's a professional baseball player? Like, And I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, like, you think that he's just a person that you would run into at the Y. And uh, he he's very down to earth about this. We talked yesterday, Phil, about... Thad Levine is, every time he opens his mouth about Phil Hughes, he has something glowing to say about him. He's, he went on MLB Network the other day and told uh, Chris Russo that they feel like th- that Phil Hughes compares exceptionally well to some of the other free agents that were out there on the market that they could have signed, they could have brought in. So Thad said, after the second surgery, they sort of feel like they added another free agent. Okay, well, I joked yesterday that if, if you added a free agent for two years and $26.4 million with a huge question mark hanging over his injury history, that's not exactly a good signing. But Levine went on to say that they expect him to be sort of a mid-rotation starter if it goes well for him, that he can be one of those innings eaters and push the young guys back down to AAA. I'm definitely in the camp that's I'll believe it when I see it, but if the Twins do get that, that would be a big step forward for the rotation this year. 
So who gets a look in uh, tonight's game then? I, I take it that the, they're going to uh, parade the big leaguers out probably tomorrow against Boston. Is this going to be a bunch of uh, prospects probably against the Gophers tonight starting? Yep. Yep, you'll see mostly prospects. In fact, I took a picture of the lineup card. I can get that for you guys here. Let me dig into my pocket. I know that Steven Gonsalves is starting the game, and he's got a shot okay. to make the club, but I kind of I sort of see that as a nominal shot. Like, he can pitch great in spring training, but unless some other people in front of him in that line get hurt, I'd be pretty surprised if he goes north. Mm. Um, same for starter uh, Fernando Romero and Aaron Slagers and guys like that. They could very well pitch in the big leagues this year, and I expect them to make at least one start apiece, but I'm not sure that uh, end of March is, is really where you have circled for Consalves. Um, but I do have the lineup, and it's uh, Zach Granitz leading off, and that's probably going to be the most familiar name the rest of the way. So if you want to stop me, feel no, free. No, we, we nope. can stop. That's, we'll, tr- we'll trust your judgment on that one. Yeah, um, Nick Gordon uh, will play tonight, though, and he'll play okay. shortstop, so you get to see him. Yeah, yeah, like he, he's a guy. So let's, let's go to Nick Gordon here for a second, because that's one... I would right now, without having seen much of him outside of just some highlight reels, and uh, I, I would trade him for an established piece in a package. What? And that's because I think he's not extraordinary at anything. I think he's solid at a lot of things. He doesn't have blow you away stolen base numbers. He's a guy who can put the bat on the ball, but has a pretty uh, pretty high strikeout rate in the minor leagues, and has some power, but not like thirty home run power. Maybe there's still more to fill out. And might be a shortstop, but might be more like a second baseman. So how does the team and and the people you talk to feel about Nick Gordon and his upside? I get the sense that it's split, but when you're talking with people, they mostly talk about how they believe in him as a shortstop. And I haven't seen enough of him to even question that. All I know is that there are uh, scouts and, uh, and writers and analysts and stuff that work for the publications that cover the minor leagues that have some questions about Gordon. Um, and I think it mostly relates with, to the arm, but I, I'd have to see more of him to really feel good about that judgment. I just think so much of Nick Gordon's future is tied into a current twin who's entering the final year of his contract this year. That'd be Brian Dozier. Um, y- you wonder about Jorge Polanco up the middle, and apparently there are people who wonder about Gordon as well. Uh, is that your double play tandem in 2019, or do you re-sign Dozier, bring him back? Um, I mean, plenty of possibilities that could be left to play out. But one of the things I'll be watching this spring, Phil, isn't whether or not he can hit. You can see his numbers in the minor leagues. A couple of slumps last year at double-A, but for the most part, has established himself as one of the better hitters on every team he's been on. So I expect that he'll eventually hit in the big leagues. But hitting looks different if you're hitting those exact same numbers from shortstop than if you are like a bad defense second baseman. That They're two completely different players. Are you going to be a, a star like Brian Dozier, or are you kind of a Dan Ugla slugger? Uh, those are kind of two extreme examples. I don't see Gordon filling either one of those, but just the idea that the number one thing they're going to be watching is that his glove, his range, his arm at shortstop, and can he stick there as soon as next year in the big leagues? So, Derek, let's play this out and say that uh, for, for the long term they keep all these guys. Yeah. Where do you think Gordon plays then? Well, if you keep Dozier, it gets tough because Polanco sort of, in my mind, took a step forward last year at shortstop. I still have questions about him. I I don't think he's a goal glover. But who moves then? Yeah, you'd have to move somebody, right? Maybe you bump Dozier over to third base or something like that when the big guy Mm -hmm. has to go play first, like Mm -hmm. you've been telling me for five years. And uh, then, okay, maybe that opens up second base for either Polanco or Gordon. I haven't heard any talk about that being a real possibility for the Twins because I think they're committed to Dozier at second base, but... 
there's a very real possibility that he won't be in a Twins uniform next year. If they don't get an extension done, he'll be a free agent and can go sign anywhere. So uh, it's it's a little premature to say, but the, the easiest thing that I can tell you is that something would have to give. You couldn't just keep going forward with all those players at their position. Derek Whatmore at Hammond Stadium in Fort Myers. He's covering spring training for 1500ESPN.com, the Touch Em All podcast. So I have completely changed my tune on Eddie Rosario over the past 12 to 18 months. And it's not, I don't think it's because the Eddie Rosario skeptics two years ago were wrong. I think it's because Eddie Rosario completely changed in one important area, making contact and patience with, (laughs) with, you know, when behind in the count, you don't have to swing at everything. So I've gone from you know what I would trade him at the the first chance I got you know May June I would I would trade him to and now I look and say that's a guy who went from 26 percent strikeouts in his plate appearances down to 18 which is much closer to I think that might even be below league average now he's a high contact guy he increased the walks almost doubled the walks from the year before um, I and I think he's got a better chance to. Uh, to play better defense in left field, too. He takes some weird routes. But I, the point is here, long-winded, Derek, I really like Eddie Rosario now. I didn't a year ago, and it's because he changed my mind by just being better in those areas. What do you yeah. think? Well, he's really taken a big step forward. I give him a ton of credit for that because I had those same questions about Rosario. I also give James Rousen a ton of credit for that. I think the first year working with the new Twins hitting coach, Rosario was really able to refine his approach. And it sounds simple. Hey, don't swing at bad pitches and then make more contact, and when you do make contact, hit it really hard. It's like, okay, yeah, great, well, good. Thanks, uh, physics professor. Now I'm going to go do that and, and try to become a star hitter. But truthfully, what Rosario was able to do was lay off those bad pitches, so no longer can an opposing pitcher just go try and throw a fastball at, it, at the eyes and Rosario's invariably going to swing at it and get himself out or get himself behind in the count where now he has to be defensive. Rosario has really reigned that sort of, I would call it recklessness. Some people like aggressiveness out of hitters. I think that what he was before last year is just reckless. You're swinging at bad pitches. You're getting yourself into bad counts. Then you don't have, like, the, the opposing pitcher doesn't have to give you a fastball. They don't have to give you a good pitch in your happy zone. When you are able to take those pitches, when you're able to lay off the bad stuff, they do have to come over the plate more. They have to go into a zone where they know you can hit it and hit it hard and they just have to hope that you're off that day. Rosario and uh, I think even Miguel Sano has made some strides in that area where you're looking for one specific pitch to hit. Byron Buxton took a big step forward in that last year. There's one spot where I can crush it, and if it's not there on the first pitch, I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to get in control of the count, so then he has to come back to me. It's a very cat-and-mouse game. I think Rosario's gotten a lot better at it. And Phil, I specifically remember... This isn't to throw you under the bus. I'm jumping right there with you. We had a podcast last spring when you mm-hmm. were down here in Fort Myers where neither one of us batted an eye at the thought that you might trade Eddie Rosario. Now if I were to tell you, hey, Judd, you got to trade one corner outfielder, Rosario or Kepler, who are you keeping? Yeah. It's changed. It's entirely yeah. changed. Last year, that was not a question. Last year it was Kepler's on yep. this upward trajectory. Right. He's fast. He's got an arm in right field. He covers some ground. Boy, I really like his swing. He looks like a young Justin Morneau. And now it's, well, he's got some questions still. He's got some things to answer. Meanwhile, Rosario just surged last summer. I think that's, sure. uh, I think there are three huge improvements on the Twins lineup last year. And Rosario's strongly in that group. The others, it's 
It's Eddie Rosario, Byron Buxton, and Jorge Polanco all really, really turned it on midsummer. And one of the big reasons why the Twins now have, for my money, one of the best offenses in baseball. Hey, what's been the reaction uh, down there to the pace of play rule changes? Have you talked to players about it? Because it seems like it's getting a lot of pushback, and pitchers are very upset that the trips to the mound are, are, are going to be, what, down to six per game per team? Because, darn it, we've got to change signals, and we've got to talk about it, and it's got to be consistent throughout the game. Yeah, some guys aren't so worried about that because, you know, if you have to change your signs with a runner on second, there are some ways to do it. And and you can prepare pregame, too. So there's there's a number of ways. You'll have to change your strategy or change how you prepare, but it's not going to be that big a deal. I think what people were a little antsy about was the potential of a pitch clock, which now won't be happening. Brian Dozier said flat out at Twins Fest it would be a horrible idea. The players are strongly against it. That was as far... That was as strong uh, as, as strong a stance as I'd heard any player take was Dozier. He said that some of the players that went to the minors last year and had to deal with the pitch clock, he said that it was a disaster. But when you talk to some of the players in the lower minors who maybe just started with it and it's just part of the game, I don't think they sense it's as disruptive as uh, the big leaguers do. The big thing that people were worried about, though, Judd, is will it change the way the game is played? You know, if you're going to get a ball for violating the pitch clock, well, what if it's full count in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded and this is the most tense moment of the game and you're trying to gather yourself as is the hitter and you take 1.5 seconds too long now it's like a right. it's like a, a walk-off clock violation i don't think anybody wanted to see that in baseball and we're at least a year away from that happening now so i, I think relatively speaking the players are pretty happy about yeah. it uh, so derek has all kinds of written stuff on 1500espn.com and uh, and you can also find our touch em all twins podcast and tonight twins and the gophers are going to play it's the first real game action for the twins and then a bunch of spring training games for the next month so derek we'll catch up again tomorrow man yeah, yeah i'm gonna more. have to check out your guys podcast to hear what this argument was about i'm excited so oh, uh, this, you and I can get into this on our podcast, but don't <laughs> don't answer the question. We'll do it on the podcast. Okay. Would All you right. be okay, bottom of the ninth <laughs> inning, with the team that's trailing getting to start mm. the inning with any three hitters that they want? Okay. Okay. Revamp Give that line. some All serious right. thought and don't screw up. <laughs> yeah. All right. Bye, Derek. All right, Bye, Webber. Thank you. All right. Uh, Mackie and Judd here. We're going to come back some more uh, Vikings offseason discussion and speculation with Matthew Collar. And then we're going to get a PhD or at least a guy with a PhD in curling. I don't know mm-hmm. if you and I can uh, expedite no. our education that much. John Benton will join us in studio. It's possible. But uh, here's Judd before we do anything for Prime Mortgage Lending. Thank you, uh, Phil. I appreciate it. And uh, th- certainly throughout the course of today's show, we have uh, discussed that I am the king of outsourcing. This means, folks, I know how to find a guy. And I want to ask you a question because I am so good at, at finding a guy. I want to tell you about my friend Kent McCullough and the folks at Prime. What would you think if I told you a mortgage company's philosophy was this simple? We would rather earn your trust than sell you a loan. Yes, that their philosophy was about the fact that they would rather earn your trust than sell you a loan. Well, when I'm talking about Kent McCullough and the folks at Prime located in Bloomington, that is exactly what they want to do. Now, here's how you find them. Go GoPrimeWithKent.com. I'll say it again. Go GoPrimeWithKent, K-E-N-T.com. This isn't about simply selling you on something. They want to earn your trust first. This is how Prime works and why they are different from the other guys. Kent and the folks at Prime believe in teamwork and collaboration. Kent is my guy because of this. If you're shopping for a new mortgage, you can count on Prime to give you sound advice and straight answers. All you have to do is check out GoPrimeWithKent.com. That's GoPrimeWithKent.com. K-E-N-T dot com. Check it out today. Back after this. Mackie and Judd now continue. This one's better than a kick in the jaw. On 1500 ESPN. 
And this portion of Mackie and Judd is sponsored by Robert W. Baird and Company. Reckless speculation. Yes, uh, you can franchise players if you want right now. In fact, weren't the Dolphins just reportedly about to franchise Jarvis Landry? So the franchise they did. has begun. But they actually did it. Matthew Collar from 1500ESPN.com, the Purple Podcast. So how much... Do you, percent chance the Vikings franchise Case Keenum in your mind, and if they don't, how much money do you think he makes? Like, what 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 do you think the guarantees are for Case Keenum as you look around uh, musical chairs? The teams are going to play for quarterbacks. I think that the percentage chance that they franchise tag him is maybe sixty forty that they don't yeah. franchise tag him, and it, maybe they either transition tag him or just let him go all together or sign him to a short-term Mike Glennon type of contract or Brock Osweiler type of deal. Uh, but that would have to assume that someone else was not interested in giving him uh, a much bigger contract than that. And I, and I think if there was a team like the Denver Broncos or the Arizona Cardinals that kind of got left out of the party with some of these other quarterbacks, those two teams I think are in a different spot than say the Jets or the Browns. And the Jets and the Browns should both be looking to draft a quarterback and maybe be in on the Kirk Cousins thing to have a franchise quarterback to help their rebuilds. But the Broncos and the Arizona Cardinals are teams that could be competitive, really competitive next year with just competent quarterback play. And so I think that both of those teams would probably pay more than the Minnesota Vikings are willing to pay to get Case Keenum. Collar, as this certainly changes on a day-by-day-by-day basis, give me your uh, gut feeling as of 12-20 today about what you think the Vikings are going to do. I still think that they are going to bring back Teddy Bridgewater on a fairly reasonable contract and maybe with lots of incentives or maybe uh, a similar short-term deal that Sam Bradford took in, in Philadelphia, which was three years and $60 million with 22 guaranteed, which is basically one year of guaranteed money. Um, but if he plays out all three years, he can make uh, a lot of cash. So I think that they will bring back Bridgewater. They'll convince him to stay. I don't think his contract ends up tolling. Um, maybe they are in on the Kirk Cousins thing, maybe not, but I would guess they get priced out of that. And then they bring in a veteran backup quarterback who is known to be good. My pick would be Josh McCown for that. Mm-hmm. who had a, a very good year playing for the New York Jets last season. But there's another name that's out there that would be a possibility, which is Trevor Simeon. And I'm not saying that Trevor Simeon is really good, uh, but the Denver Broncos are going to trade him. And he went 8-6 and six as a starter two years ago on a very good team. But he would also be a possibility. Somebody like that who has backup experience, who's been decent to good, that you know would be better if they were with the Vikings. What would it make you consider a Nick Foles if you, if you were – the Vikings, if you could get him for a third-round pick, which you probably can't, would you do that, or would you draw the line and say that you don't want Nick Foles? No, I, I would definitely do it for a third-round pick. I just don't see the motivation of the Philadelphia Eagles to trade him at all unless it's some crazy bananas offer. But even then, uh, with uncertainty about Carson Wentz and, and when he could be back, you know that, let's say, Nick Foles has to play the first three or four games of the season before Wentz is back. Well, those are going to be important games in an NFC East race, so you're, you're going to need him. Or if Wentz uh, struggles at all, you could always go back to Foles. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear since he won the Super Bowl that uh, you wouldn't have any sort of quarterback controversy, really, if, if he had to take over. Maybe you'd have a long-term issue, but not 
for winning next year, and the Eagles will be a very competitive team again next year. I think as an insurance policy, he's great for the Eagles to have. But with that said, I mean, if that ended up being the price, hey, we'll give you Nick Foles for a third-round pick, then I think you take him immediately. You don't name him your franchise quarterback because he's still under contract, and you could even bring back Teddy Bridgewater too and just say, all right, guys, in training camp, whoever wins this is going to be our quarterback, and we know we're in good shape. I just have a really tough time seeing that happen. Matthew Collar, 1500ESPN.com and uh, the Purple Podcast. What's next for Laquan Treadwell in your mind? I know you have a story about this on 1500ESPN.com. What kind of hope is there for him? Uh, I think that the hope for Laquan Treadwell is really fleeting after this year. And you know, early in the season, he got a good number of snaps. And I, and I think that the team showed some confidence in him that he had made progress. But he really didn't. And, you know, the, the quarterback rating Case Keenum throwing in Laquan Treadwell's direction was 49. I mean, to put that mm. in perspective, it was 116 when throwing to Stephon Diggs. And he threw to Stephon Diggs a lot when he was covered. And, and so, you know, there was a great scheme here and everything else that set up these wide receivers to be good and a lot of talent. But when he threw to Treadwell, he had very little success. And going from one catch to 20 catches is, is just really not all that impressive or what you really hoped for for this season. And it wasn't that he was even efficient. That's the thing. It's not like, well, he only had 20 catches, but when they threw to him, he was good. He really wasn't. The best thing he did this year was probably block. And if the best thing you do well as a receiver is block, uh, you're not in very good shape. The only reason to hold out a little bit of hope is just Treadwell's age. The only player on the roster who is younger than Laquan Treadwell is Delvin Cook. Hmm. So there would be the small possibility that he could continue to work on technique, get a little more opportunity, and then become some sort of role player. But it's really hard to see when he doesn't have a particular skill that makes him stand out. This is not like Cordero Patterson, who you could put in as a running back or who you could throw screen passes to and, or, and use on special teams, and all of a sudden he's fairly valuable for you, even though he's not a good wide receiver. That's just not the case with Treadwell. The problem is he, he's that young collar and he's that slow. Well, well yeah. That's so right, you can't fix you're not, that. Uh, you're not getting His faster. speed is... And, and, and I've never believed that speed and success in the NFL as a wide receiver really correlate perfectly because you see a lot of track runners who don't uh, work out, and then you see Larry Fitzgerald who runs like a 4-7, and now what does he run now? I mean, there, there have to be offensive linemen who are faster than Larry Fitzgerald now, and he's still one of the league leaders <laughs> in receptions every year because his technique is incredible, his knowledge of the game is incredible, his hands are incredible, and the things that Laquan Treadwell was talked about that were going to make up for his speed, they just have not translated. And the, the one to, to go back and look at, the play that really demonstrates this is Against Baltimore, Stephon Diggs was out. They started the game where they got one-on-one tight man coverage, and they went deep to Treadwell, a 50-50 ball, go up and get it. That's what you're supposed to be good at. And it bounced off his hands and was intercepted. And it seemed every time they went down the field, deep throws to Treadwell, Keenum went two for nine. So, so, and And one of them was an amazing circus catch. But other than that, we didn't see him go up and, and win battles like that. And if you're not going to be able to do that and can't get separation, I'm just not sure where you'd fit. Speed might be the most overrated attribute for a wide receiver. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but Chris Carter couldn't outrun a palm tree, and that dude is one of the five greatest receivers of all time. He could, he, could run, he could run a precise route. And he could catch a ball that was in tight coverage. Correct. Yep, for sure. 
Yeah, it's yep. and 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 that's the thing with with Treadwell though that anybody who overcomes that speed issue has to also be very smart and very technical yes. and all those things. So he could improve the technique from year to year. That's something that he talked about last season. But he's got so far to go. It's just really hard to see that happening. Now, the, what that means in my mind is. They need another wide receiver. I like Jarius Wright's role as what it is, mm-hmm. but I think someone like Kendall Wright, who played for Chicago, he was a slot receiver a lot of the time last year, but he's a little bit flexible. I would like to throw him in there and then have him with Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen, and then I think you have a pretty impressive attack. Are we to believe that the Jets are going to break the bank for Cousins or not? Because I've now seen, I think you actually um, picked up a report now that tries to shoot down the previous report that the Jets are going to potentially guarantee an entire contract worth of uh, cash to Kirk Cousins. Yes, we have what they call in the business conflicting reports. Oh, wait till next week at the Combine, Matthew. <laughs> oh, I know. Anybody who has a few drinks and runs their mouth a bit is going to be a source next week. Um, and, you no know, problem. that's the thing about, about some of these football teams, especially in New York, where it seems like everybody's got some sort of source saying they're going to do this or that. There was two reports that they were willing, the Jets are willing to do anything necessary to get Cousins and then a report today from Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News saying, okay, take a deep breath. The Jets are really interested in giving him the Matt Stafford contract for $135 million over five years, but they are not interested in going completely off the deep end to sign Kirk Cousins. And that sounds a lot more realistic to me because the Jets do have a high draft pick here and plenty of cap space to make any other move they might want to make. So if I were the Jets, I don't know that I would go crazy for Cousins like that. I would probably sign Sam Bradford and try to draft Baker Mayfield instead and and see what I can do in the draft and maybe fill that spot to be a little more competitive or bring back Josh McCown rather than trying to just go completely insane to bring in Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Great stuff, as always. Plus, Matthew Collar has uh, 10 names that should be on your radar as a Vikings fan with the draft approaching here in uh, in a couple of months. So go find his stuff on 1500ESPN.com and also the Purple Podcast. Bye, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, guys. All right. Uh, he, he does wonderful analysis. And he will analysis. be at the Combine uh, next week. So tons of speculation from Indianapolis at that point. Reckless speculation. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. So much fun. The uh, U.S. men's curling team, that was super fun to watch this morning. You and Dave are breaking it down. They edged Canada, and uh, they will play for a gold medal on Saturday against Sweden. We're going to talk to John Benton when we come back here, who competed in the 2010 Olympic Games in Vancouver. Uh, you've heard him as an NBC TV analyst during the 2014 uh, Winter Games. So let's come back. And uh, and let's keep the curling excitement alive on our show here, Mackie and Judd. But first, Luther Brookdale Toyota. I was telling you guys yesterday about the great selection of pre-owned vehicles, and you can just you can find a full layout on LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. You can sort by mileage, you can sort by color or make or model or year or price, whatever you want. So sometimes it's fun to go back and look at you know ten-year-old Toyotas or. Or you, know, you might you might glance past them because, oh, they have 100,000 miles on them or something. Like, here's one, a 2002 Toyota Highlander uh, V6 four-wheel drive SUV, 140,000 miles. For one, there's still a lot of life left in that engine and on those wheels because it's a Toyota. They're very durable. And you get the added comfort of knowing that the service department at Luther Brookdale Toyota is the one taking care of you. Just 6795 6795 for a perfectly... 
uh, still capable 2002 Highlander. How about, uh, let's find another one here, a 2008 Highlander four-wheel drive SUV with just 130,000 miles on it, $11,000. Luther Brookdale, Toyota.com, 694 in Brooklyn Boulevard. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. They have completely gone off the deep end. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Please, to send the U.S. Please, to the gold medal please, game. Please, please, please. John Schuster and Team USA with American curling history. They're off to play for gold for the first time ever. Yeah, so bronze medal in 2006. And uh, that's, man, that's, what's my math, 12 years ago now. And um, and no medals since then. In fact, Canada, this is, this is how big that win was this morning, not just for U.S. men's curling, but Canada has won the gold medal every year going back to... The last time they didn't win gold was 2002 in Salt Lake. They won a silver that year and then a silver in Nagano in 1998. So we were all in watching this on TV this morning on the TCL TV. And it's funny because John Benton reached out after the Lunani Jared Allen nugget that Lunani <laughs> floated out a few weeks ago uh, from the Four Seasons Curling Center in Blaine. And you were a gold medalist in the 09 U.S. Men's curling championship you competed in the 2010 olympics in vancouver you've known these guys you've competed against these guys you've been on nbc so um the floor is yours your thoughts on this run a gold medal match against sweden on saturday and kind of uh what this means to a sport that's growing in, in popularity look at this this is fun it's it's a ton of fun and uh, thanks for having me in by the way and and you know while we were talking off air it, you know for our sport for any niche sport in the olympics this is the moment right this is everything that you've ever hoped for i I've, I've played since i was 6 years old and to see our sport legitimized uh, to see friends of mine playing for a gold medal uh, you know, former teammate of mine in 2010. And, and uh, you know, we were the butt of a lot of jokes back in 2010. John really struggled back then. And to see him going to his third Olympics as a skip and having success now, um, you know, my Facebook blew up this morning. Yeah. Our telephones were ringing off the hook. Learn to curl classes are filling up. I mean, this is everything that a niche Olympic sport could could hope for. What, what can, can this mean, too, just as far as getting people who, who might see it for the first time on TV and think that this looks cool and then see the success of the U.S. and be excited about that? What can uh, something like this mean as far as participation and increasing that, John? Well, we've we've been growing ever since we've been part of the, the Olympic cadre. Um, but having this kind of exposure to be on the gold medal stage uh, is, you know, any anybody in any of the sports where that's happened would tell you that, that it's really, really big. I mean... The the big thing for me is really being able to see um, people grow and to refill our athlete pipeline. Um, so our curling club is the Olympic training site. So John and all of these athletes uh, have practiced and trained at our club for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Um, the big thing for any Olympic sport is to be able to refill that pipeline. So the more that we can grow the sport, the more clubs that are built, uh, we can actually refill that pipeline and continue to have success. What's it like now uh, to s- sit here back in the States and watch this too, especially having experience with these guys basically throughout your life and then having gone through the experience before, what's it like to turn on the TV and know all these people who are participating? It's it's really uh, kind of surreal. 
especially having played with John particularly, uh, the, the round-robin game that he won earlier in the week against Canada. Uh, there was an interview afterward where he was quite emotional about it. He said he had seen a kind of a Dan Jansen piece earlier, and having had not had success at the previous two Olympics, he kind of was referring to that and, and thinking, geez, I don't want to be the Dan Jansen story of curling. Yeah. And now here he is at the gold medal match. So, you know, I get goosebumps thinking about it, right? Be, being there. And and I would love to be there. I, I really wish that I was to watch this happen. But, uh, you know, we've got to take care of things at home, too. And you're, But you're still competing, too, right? I am. I am. We actually lost in the Olympic trials. Uh, we were one of the two teams that beat John's team in the round robin. Uh, and we lost in a tiebreaker to make the final uh, the final set of three games for the Olympic trials. And uh, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, I and uh, 10 other or nine other men's teams will be headed off to Fargo for this year's national championships, which leads to the world championships in Las Vegas this year. Yeah. So uh, our guest, if you're just joining us here, is John Benton from the uh, Four Seasons Curling Center in Blaine. Real quick, if people want, I mean, if people have curling fever yep. and they want to come, if they live in the Twin Cities and they want to come stop by, if, if they've never done it before, where can people find out information? What can people do if they say, you know what, I want to try that? So there's a ton of opportunity. I'll, I'll give our club a plug. It's fourseasonscurlingclub.com, uh, 763-780-3328. Uh, like I said, we're adding Learn to Curl classes like crazy, and they're filling up uh, in minutes. Uh, but uh, we now have, uh, the, as of June 1st, this coming year, we'll have six clubs in the Twin Cities. So uh, St. Paul, our club, Frogtown, Chaska, Lakeville and Richfield will all have curling centers. So if, (laughs) if you can't find curling somewhere in the twin cities, you're not looking in the right place. So you've been doing it for decades since you were six years old. Um, where, where we first connected was Lou Nanny was on our show a few weeks ago and he said he was having dinner with Jared Allen during Super Bowl week. And Jared has been kind of a recreational curler and he's done playing football now. And he's, he wants to build some sort of a facility in Nashville so my question's kind of twofold. Like your thoughts on Jared Allen, period, just be wanting to become an Olympic curler, and then kind of tucked into that, how quickly can you get good? Like how quickly can you get to 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 maybe even be on an Olympic team if you started and devoted a bunch of time to it right now, if you were you know young enough? Yeah. So you and I went back and forth a little bit in conversation offline, and and. First of all, having any pro athlete inst- interested in curling is really cool. I mean, we had Ver- Verna Davis as the, the honorary team captain for the third time. Uh, so he's been over in Korea with the team. Um, uh, Larry Fitzgerald was up at our place a couple weeks ago for the Super Bowl and did a commercial. There's more interest that way. So uh, especially having Jared Allen, I'm a big fan of his from when he was a Viking, obviously. We need that mullet in the games, man. Wouldn't do. that be fun? We, really, we got the really mustache. Really he'd be, be great the for curling. He'd, he'd be fantastic. <laughs> he'd be, he'd be what perfect. a great spokesman he'd be. He, he would. And, uh, you know, so I'd, I'd love to hook up with him, you know, get him out on the ice and give him a chance to train. To, to answer your question, though, um, I think that physically, uh, for a pro athlete to move over to curling um, in four years' time, you could easily pick up the physical part of the game, the, the throwing of the stone and the sweeping. Um, it's more the experiential piece because it's a bit, you know, we call it chess on ice for a reason. It's very tactical. There's there's a lot of tactics, and because ice conditions can change, and in different clubs, ice is different, and playing against different teams, they play different tactics, so it's it's... It's very tactical in that uh, if it were chess, it would be like playing chess where your pieces don't ever end up in the exact same spot every time. So imagine the variables that come into that, and you just need to be able to see those situations more and more and more to understand what the best play is. What does uh, today's success mean for where the U.S. program is at, too? I mean, has this been evolving? Because 
you know, h- hockey was at a decent place in 80, but then it completely changed when, when they won gold because so many kids saw it and the program continued to build. Has this been an ascending program that, that more people are being drawn to as a sport? So after 2010, we finished 10th out of 10, and the USOC, quite honestly, they came back to us and said, USA Curling, whatever you're doing is not working. I remember that story, yes. And uh, so there, there were a lot of growing pains, and there's still a lot of debate right now about the quote-unquote high-performance program. There, there's, there's a high-performance program that selects players into a pool and kind of forms teams. John's team... Uh, fell outside of that program initially, and he kind of won his way into the program with these four guys. Uh, So they were not selected by coaches that John actually formed this team and won his way into the high-performance program, Hmm. which gets him access to funding uh, for travel and training purposes and access to coaching uh, that you don't get as a self-formed, self-managed team. And that's that's something, I think, for for the, the layman that you might not understand is you've got a bunch of teams out there that aren't funded. They're not, it's just four people that got together that want to play. That's, that's our team, quite frankly. Um, and, uh, you go out and you find sponsors and try and fund yourself and go out and compete. But in order to achieve the kind of thing that John Schuster's achieving right now, you have to play against the teams that he's played here at the Olympics time after time after time to gain that experience, understand how they play and get used to your own team. Uh, learn their personalities, learn what they like, what they don't like. When they're in a pressure situation, do they want somebody talking to them or do they want quiet, right? It's all of those things that you don't really see or, or hear um, that go into becoming a really good curling team. It's There's so much, um, it's such a subtle sport too, right? Where, I mean, and this is where I'd love for you to explain to the audience as, as best you can to people who are probably jumping on for the first time, some of the tactics involved. So what did you see in that match is it a match or a game? Yes. A match? In, e- so, either. Okay, this morning, and then against Sweden in the gold medal on Saturday. What are some X's and O's or things that, that kind of uh, can evolve the way that we watch these uh, these games in the Olympics? So, so the biggest thing to remember, obviously, for curling is that um, at the end of each end or inning, the, the team with the stones closest to the center of the rings score. Uh, because somebody has the advantage of throwing the last stone or the hammer, uh, in every end. Um, Dave was saying hammer this morning. He was so confident. like <laughs> He was so cocky that he knew like three curling terms that we didn't know in he here. He seemed like he knew a lot. Like, Don't worry, if they score a point in the, in the ninth, yeah. it doesn't matter. They got the hammer in the tenth. Okay, Dave, yeah. He's no, get it past <laughs> the hog line, my man. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Get it across the hog line. So the, the, the big thing about having the hammer, obviously, is that the other team could have all of their stones in the rings, but I have if I have the last shot, I can get mine closer, mm-hmm. right? So the or team knock yours out, right? Exactly. The team with the hammer is always trying to keep things more open, right? So that they can score with that last rock, and they want to try and score multiple points when you have the hammer because it's considered like an extra shot. Can really. I ask you? Was because I was saying this to the guys this morning when it became obvious that Canada was down by one going into the tenth end, and the U.S. had the hammer. I was thinking you don't want it to come down to just hoping that the U.S. makes a mistake on a throw at the end. Is there something that you can do tactically if you don't have the hammer to set up your rocks so that it doesn't just come down to, well, we just traded blows back and forth and now we bumped yours out and, and we and, and we win? That's, the, that's actually the second critical point. When you don't have the hammer, you're trying to do the opposite. You're trying to junk up the middle. You're trying to plug up the center line and get one rock in there and protect it. Right. You want to steal that point. So you're protecting it with as much as you can. So that's why in that 10th end, you saw the U.S. team, you know, Canada put up a guard and then 
uh, John Landsteiner was able to tick the guard over, move it off the center line without removing it. He did that twice. And th- those are really tough shots for that first player, the lead, uh, to throw. Yeah. So is is uh, Sweden very tough, or did, did basically the U.S. get past the, the uh, Russians today by beating Canada? So I actually um, had uh, these three teams kind of uh, in medal contention um, and Sweden, for sure, is super tough. Um, one thing with the Swedish team that you'll notice is is really significant is that they play defense really well, which means that they can throw a very hard shot, like as hard as you can possibly throw the stone, mm-hmm. with accuracy. So they can blow things up. When they get in trouble, they can blow things up. And when they get a lead, they can hold a lead very well. So that's going to be the significant thing for John Schuster and the guys is um, when when I was broadcasting, I talked a lot about rock positions. So what I mean by that is if your opponent has a, a stone in the rings, you can actually use that to your advantage. You can use it as backing. So if you get your stone placed closely in front of theirs, it's going to be harder for them to remove it without removing their own stone. Yeah. Right. So you're going to see a lot of that type of play. Schuster's going to be freezing rocks down to Sweden's rings or stones, even if they may not be count. Right. They may be just setting up something for later in the end. Okay, can you stick around just for a few more minutes? Oh, to for the, sure. Okay. Because we have we have one more segment left and we'd like to if people want to chime in via email too, we might not have time for phone calls. But if you have questions about uh, curling or anything for John Benton here. This is your chance to tweet us at Phil Mackey at 1500ESPN-Judd or Mackey and Judd at 1500ESPN.com from the TCL Broadcast Studios. He and Judd are back. Lights, camera, action. On 1500ESPN. The brand new 1500ESPN app is here. Stream live shows, download podcasts, read the latest sportswear articles, and more all in one place. If you need another reason to download it, I've got a couple. We're spending the next month giving away a $50 Red Cow Red Rabbit gift card every day and a 55-inch TCL Roku TV every week. Got to have the app to enter. Download it. 1500ESPN app is at the Apple App Store and Google Play Store now. To send the U.S. to the gold medal game. Clean. 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 John Schuster and Team USA with American curling history. They're off to play for gold for the first time ever. And that'll be Saturday against Sweden. Uh, John Benton has been in studio with us for the last 20 minutes or so from the Four Seasons Curling Center in Blaine. And uh, and he's got credentials. Gold medalist in the 2009 U.S. Men's Curling Championship. He competed in Vancouver in the Olympic Games in 2010. He's been an NBC TV analyst. And we've got some questions. Uh, people, We have just a few minutes left on the show. And um, some people putting questions out on social media. One wants uh, you to eek tweets in. Have John tell you about his great curling family that you. Uh, oh um, wow! So do you, you must have a lot of people in your family that yeah, are, to, we, to we start have, at six years old. Obviously, yeah, we, you're not going there alone. So it's long story, but there, there's uh, about a dozen kids in the family. So uh, we have all curled at one point or another. Started out at St. Paul Curling Club. Uh, through the junior program, um, and you'll find that in curling that there's a lot of legacy families, uh, and so uh, we have an event that still runs at the curling club, kind of honoring honoring our family and and uh, you know our our uh, uh, 
um, parents that that have passed on and and uh, it's families are are just really really big and curling and uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun to share it with them what's yeah. the, the the in your, your mind the biggest thing about curling that people uh, don't understand but what's the toughest part that people don't see when, when they just watch on TV so there's two things uh, because you only get that window frame of TV they don't understand how long the ice is it's actually 150 feet long okay so you're taking a 42 pound piece of granite sliding it across the ice about 90 feet to stop it in a spot about a foot big. Yeah. Right? And so that kind of puts it in perspective, right? When people come out, they're like, holy cow, that's a long ways away. Um, the other thing, uh, well, sweeping is one thing. They think that you're steering the stone somehow, and you're really more just adding distance. So if I haven't thrown it hard enough, uh, our sweepers take it further. So you can take it up to 10 to 12 feet further, a good pair of sweepers can. Uh, so when you're watching the, the sweeping, it's mostly for distance. Um, the other thing is the curl, actually. The, I don't know why on TV it doesn't appear as well, but curl is like English. Um, so you'll see the stone rotating, a clockwise stone rotating will curl, move laterally from left to right as it moves down the ice. So you can have a, a blocker out in front of the rings and actually get your stone to curl in behind the blocker. Yeah. Right. So that that's kind of the three the three basic things that most uh, people. Listen. Someone Pat tweets in here, and I have no idea what he's asking. I'm just going to ask it, and if it makes sense to you, you go ahead and answer it here, right. uh, John. Can John talk about the eighth and steel? The eighth and steel. So oh, the eighth. Okay, the eighth and steel. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 game uh, this morning, you know, stealing uh, two points in 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 that fashion against Canada is just kind of unheard of. Um, you know, I was a little shocked that Canada uh, really struggled with weight control in their game, um, but they are a little chubby. Yeah, I've got <laughs> the same problem. Beer, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that. Judd and I are the and same. I'm not Canadian. Of course. I drink <laughs> of too much course. beer, but I'm not Canadian. But that that was that was critical um, because it really um, stealing in the even ends, scoring in the even ends is a huge thing, right? So especially late in the game because that sets you up. So assuming you score in the eighth you give up a point or two in the ninth, you're going to end up with the last rock in the 10th end. And that, and that's really what kind of set them up for the win today was a couple of mistakes by Canada. Yeah. Hey, this has been super insightful and awesome. And if you want to follow more or you want to check out what John's doing at the Four Seasons Curling Center, is it just, it's Four Seasons Curling? Four Seasons Curling Club.com. Awesome. And, uh, and yeah, you can follow. It's uh, JB Curling, I believe, on Twitter. JB Curler. JB Curler. On yep. Twitter if you want to follow John. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, USA and Sweden on Saturday. And we're going to try and get Jared Allen in the games in 2022. We'll see if Lou Nanny can help us with that. Jared Allen would be a hoot. <laughs> If you went into curling. <laughs> yes, we need the magical mullet just staring over and surveying the landscape. That'd I be super wait. fun. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Mackie and Judd back tomorrow. Game show Friday. Write that down predictions. And speaking of Lou Nanny, will join us tomorrow uh, as well. You can find all of our stuff on demand at 1500ESPN.com or Apple Podcasts or the brand new 1500ESPN mobile app. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. 
Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. Need a gift idea for the outdoor adventure in your life? Shop the Allbirds Mizzle Collection, made with water-repellent puddle guard technology and ZQ-certified merino wool with a low environmental impact. It's a natural fit for winter runs. And Allbirds offsets the carbon footprint to make their mizzle collection carbon neutral, so you can take comfort in treading lighter. Get on their nice list this year with the Allbirds Mizzle Collection. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com.